0: Pathways to Resilience is brought to you in part by Omega, a learning community of funders and thought partners committed to understanding and responding to the great global challenges of our time. You can find out more about Omega at omega.ngo. We live in a time between times, amidst a past fast disappearing and a future that often appears to be darker than anything we have known before. The betwixt and between quality of time has become more revealed as we find ourselves in a liminal space where endings and beginnings exchange rapidly and nothing seems clear and certain or fixed in stone. Call it apocalyptic time or initiatory time, for it is both. The times can be considered apocalyptic in the sense that everything seems on the verge of collapse and in need of renewal. At the same time, When in the throes of trouble, it is the nature of the human soul to awaken in ways that are initiatory, as well as revelatory. From Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World by Michael Mead. Michael Mead is a renowned storyteller, author, and scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. He combines hypnotic storytelling, street-savvy perceptiveness, and spellbinding interpretations of ancient myths with a deep knowledge of cross-cultural rituals. He has an unusual ability to distill and synthesize these disciplines, tapping into ancestral sources of wisdom and connecting them to the stories we are living today. He is the author of many books, his most recent being Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World. Join Michael and I for the next hour as we explore the process and practice of soul, its language, its values, and how it can be used to guide us through the necessary crumbling of individual and cultural facades and direct us towards the center, the dwelling place where authentic possibility, understanding, and wisdom reside. You're listening to Pathways to Resilience, and I'm your host, Weston Pugh. You know, I have been sitting for the past two months with the breadth and depth of your content and trying to figure out how to make sense of it and and, and approach it. Um, and as I was sitting with it yesterday, um, sort of this idea came to me about um, psychology right and and the original kind of root of psychology meant the study of soul and it seems to me that you're kind of presenting this new and ancient psychology of soul and and creating this invitation for us to uh, re-engage with soul both in self and in the world and in thinking about sort of the quality and nature of worldviews and kind of what they do for us. They serve to kind of anchor us in a position through which we can um, engage with reality. And and worldviews are kind of these, these foundational concepts and ideas that we then, uh, that then help to kind of shape values, right? That then help shape action and behavior in the world. Um, so I was thinking about sort of, these kind of foundational concepts of of soul and then the the corollary values that show up like like many of what you talk about as being sort of imagination right creativity uh beauty um and how those values then help shape this action that helps us to uh make more soul in in the world engage in the process of of soul creation Um, so I wanted to kind of just, just kind of frame this conversation as kind of an exploration of this worldview, the, the core concepts, the values, and then the goals, this, this process of soul making and how we engage with it in ourselves, uh, and in the world and why this is so vital to us right now, uh. In this time that we're kind of trapped in, as you talk about in in your book, Awakening the Soul, a deep response to a troubled world, kind of trapped in this flatland of of uh, of kind of hard and fast reality that's time bound. Um, and so I was wondering if we could start just by you offering an, you know, you've written an entire book. It's been your life's work, but, and I'm sure this is a question that you get from the very beginning all the time, but just offering a few thoughts to just kind of help us contextualize the idea of soul. Well, soul's an
1: ancient, as you kind of implied, an ancient conception, I guess you would say. It's a word intended to describe something that is ultimately indescribable and uh, limitless so th- one of the old idea is um you you know what soul is when it's absent mm-hmm. so when soul is absent people are disconnected and things become disconnected if soul leaves a relationship that people can't find in the relationship can't find each other anymore they're no longer relating because relating is sharing one's soul at a, at a level of the other person's mm-hmm. soul. And so, and then turned another way, soul is what connects uh, mind and body, or matter and spirit. It's the connecting tissue of life and of the world. Soul is secretly what connects nature and culture, which people think are opposed to each other, but they're opposed because we've lost soul. And when people... Uh, feel in um, they find the soul qualities in the places where they live. And as you implied also, you're born with a soul or soul elements, but then we're here to make more soul. And that comes primarily in the Western world. That comes from Keats, who says, consider the world the veil of soul-making. So we're here to make soul. And it's particularly important now because, um, and and the book Awakening in the Soul came really from answering some questions when people were saying uh, well if you had to name one element that's missing that's causing all the trouble what is it? and I said well soul because when soul is missing people can become not simply opposed to each other but can fall into the idea that the other person is evil mm-hmm. uh, and so whenever you see polarized groups they've lost soul mm-hmm. When and and so We have that now throughout modern culture. And so it seems to me that all the things that we need to do in order to remake the world so that culture is connected back to nature, so that the masculine and the feminine can find each other, so that the old and the young can relate, um, is gonna require making more soul.
0: I was thinking yesterday of soul as interstitial tissue. Yeah, that's nice. Alliterative also. Um, on, on, an, on an interior level that, that creates, uh, that's the water within which we swim. Well, and that's the old idea that mm-hmm. you connect. Um, spirit is connected
1: to fire and air and tends to ascend. Mm-hmm. Soul is connected to water and earth and tends to descend. Mm-hmm. So modern cultures are ascensional. They're trying to move as fast as possible and get quickly to somewhere they can't define what it is, but they're trying to get there as fast as they can. And so it has more of the quality of fast-moving spirit. Mm -hmm. And what it does is leave behind the soul. And so there's a lot of people left behind. And then there's all the aspects of the soul that would give uh, life more fullness and more connection. That's left behind. Mm -hmm. And technology is another kind of thing that tends to leave soul behind. Uh, unless you're going to consider the technology of the sacred. So the soul is connected to the sacred and the ways of finding and making life more sacred.
0: So when you lose soul, you lose sacredness too. And so it's sort of, it's, it's, there's this paradox um, in the sense that it's a position, but it's also an orientation. It's also a goal. In, in the sense that we're trying to make more of it in the world, but we're also trying to sit in the position of it.
1: Yeah, and, and the seat of the soul is a very old phrase. And so when a person uh, is anxious and jittery and, and and doesn't know what to do or where they are or what's really going on, they've lost the seat of the soul. Mm-hmm. And when you see practices from the eastern ancient Eastern world, like meditation coming in this world, that's partly... Uh, an instinctive seeking of the seat of the soul again. And in the Western world, it was called contemplation meditation in the Eastern world, but they both have to do with practices that sit a person down in their soul.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you use the word jittery and, and anxious to describe a person that's lost touch with the seat of the soul. And I, I think about just the increasing levels of anxiety in our culture and the need for distraction. Um, And I think of the idea of just a jittery culture. Well, what's going on now, I I
1: call it collective anxiety. Mm -hmm. So like if if we have a test tomorrow Mm -hmm. and we're feeling anxious, that's natural. Mm -hmm. If something has happened that no one expected and people get anxious, that's natural. Mm -hmm when you don't know why you're anxious, then it's not exactly personal anxiety. It's now collective anxiety. And so this, near as I can tell, the source of the ever-increasing anxiety in the culture, and they now say, the people that do the surveys, now say that anxi- anxiety has overtaken depression as the most popular neurosis, I guess you would say. Um, and the reason for it, I think, is, is the fact that uh, no one knows where anything is going. We're, in, we're living inside of a collective breakdown. And so when it comes to economics, everything's up in the air. The institutions are rattling, and many of them are hollowed out. No uh, education can't keep up with the internet. You just everywhere you turn, what people used to consider the stability of a culture, which was its institutions, it's all now in disarray and in upheaval in many cases. And no one knows whether it comes to nature, where you have increasing storms, enormous storms that no one can predict anymore. You you know, you know have the storms that used to be in the fall and now happening in the spring as well. You have wildfires in one part of the country and flooding in another part of the country, kind of like a biblical state, some people think. But what that does is make make people unsure and uncertain about the future, both in terms of nature and in terms of culture. And people are looking for something to steady the vibrations of their life. And when they can't find it, it becomes
0: free-flowing anxiety. And part of, you know, part of the the original... um question was kind of what is soul and then why is it important today and I think something that you just said that is so so key is that uh, we live in this culture that desperately seeks stability and um, control is a part of stability right controlling the environment um, controlling uh, those things that are around us and now the only place that we can find stability is in the self yeah
1: so when the world outside us is rattling and in upheaval mm-hmm. and it's a very unusual time because nature and culture at the same time are being hit with storms mm-hmm. um then the the remaining places to look are outside in the cosmos mm-hmm. the idea that the cosmos consider continues even while things rattle on the surface of the planet mm-hmm. uh theoretically the, the cycles of the planets continue so that's a big reassurance that most people don't have in the modern world but the other place you look is deep inside and deep inside is supposed to be that anchoring settling presence of the soul and deep inside is where people find authenticity Um, And so that's the other thing everybody's missing, typically, Mm -hmm. is because amidst all the storms and the rapid changes, there's an increase of inauthenticity coming from the tops of government but also from other places. And so people are lacking the stabilizing force of the authentic Mm -hmm. and have to look for it inside, uh, whereas people might have, in less turbulent times, found some of it outside.
0: Yeah and 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 that lack lack of authenticity is also shining through our institutions right which is causing the the crumbling if if structures remain authentic they remain strong yeah, and rooted. strong and flexible and, and rooted and flexibility exactly. is an authentic quality Well, i think about the nature of complex adaptive systems and 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 one of the the uh, elements of a complex adaptive system is really this balance between structure and flexibility. You need enough structure to create form, but then too much structure and you're suffocating um, the outside elements from coming in to give creative nutrition and energy to the form and the shape. Um, And and that's
1: acted out in the rigidification of certain parts of the culture, where out of anxiety and fear, Mm -hmm. people are narrowing down their ideas and affixing their their projections on the strong man who claims to fix everything because everybody knows something should happen Uh, but then they wind up losing the flexibility losing the soul when the soul is lost creativity disappears and imagination begins to diminish imagination I write about it is the deepest power of the soul and the problems we have are so big now they're not going to be solved by logic and they're not going to be solved by consensus it has to be an awakening of the deep
0: imagination yeah you 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 write uh, in uh, in chapter 5 here of awakening the soul where reason fails and logic stumbles myth awaits to open up paths of imagination and understanding And so myth and story seem to me as tools to help us to connect with soul in self and in the world and help almost, I almost see myth and story as kind of the language of soul. Is that a way to think about it possibly? Yeah, the,
1: the soul has narrative intelligence.
0: Narrative. Yeah. where
1: the mind might have logical intelligence or soul, is mm. narrative intelligence. Yeah, and, and so the instinct of the soul is we're all living inside a story. The problem now is mo- most people don't know what the story is. Yeah. People used to have shared mythology. Yeah. And so when something happened, they could go, oh, that's like when Odysseus does this, or that's like when Athena does that. And, and now we've fallen out of story, so to
0: speak. Yeah. And is, is there a difference between kind of religious conceptions of soul and mythic conceptions? Oh,
1: yeah. Yes. So the religious conceptions, to me, uh, fall into the trap of dogma. And so then everything has to be identified in a doctrinal way so that um, it can be used, essentially, in... in, 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 in religious aims whereas the soul doesn't really have doctrine and dogma it has endless imagination and so yeah when i'm talking i'm a recovering catholic so when i'm talking about soul i'm talking about that ancient soul that imbues the plants and the animals and the living world itself as well as the depths of the of the human being and so it it, it, it by its nature escapes the doctrines and the dogmas and also by its nature, it's ancient and immediate at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that people think that myths are old stories about things that came from long time ago, but I call it living myth. And what it means is myth is alive and well in the soul, and it's mm-hmm. trying to help us understand the story that we're in. And when we get the story a little bit, all of a sudden we have that flexible stability yeah. because we can find the path. And many, many stories are about finding and losing the path.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm curious because you must at at I'm sure many of your talks get questions uh, from folks that identify as being an atheist, and how do they you know how do they how is there space for them to connect to to soul, spirit and soul, spirit and and soul. So
1: the first thing I do is uh, like a, a joke. That is, if you take the word. A- atheist and separate just the beginning and the rest. It's a theist, and a theist is someone that is inclined towards the divine, and so an atheist is a is inclined towards the divine by the back door. <laughs> and what happens, I think, is the theological theistic doctrines uh, drive people who have either a deeper feeling or a greater insight away from the religious institutions. And so then one of the away places is I'm against all that. I think it's a temporary road. And as ancient poets would say, when you're scared or wounded, you cry out, oh God, uh, no matter who you are. And so God to me is just the fewest number of letters used to mention the divine, which is, and so, so I talk about the divine rather than the religious spirit. And, and the idea for me, so I go back to old ideas, like in West Africa, they say uh, nature is the divine or spirit with a green garment on, and culture is a divine with a multicolored cloak. And so behind everything is, you could call it deep imagine, imagination, or you could call it spirit, or you could call it the divine. But when everything's falling apart, that's what we're looking for, no matter what a person might name it. Yeah. And so I think of the atheist as coming through the back door looking for the same thing as everyone else.
0: Yeah. And and so in in this time of of instability where, where structures and institutions, old forms of knowing are, are falling away and crumbling all around us, um, and There's a confusion in that because these old forms of knowing and being and relating to the world have served us at certain points in development, um, uh, but now are no longer adequate for the world in which that's trying to emerge right now. Um, And I should also kind of qualify that. I mean, obviously there's tons of cultures around the world where the dominant western pa- paradigm has not served them and has actually been a source of destruction for uh, hundreds if not thousands of years um, and that dominant paradigm is now kind of reached the the end of its uh, knowledge um, and so so how do we um, how does one tend soul and and connect with soul and self and in in the world what's what is the language and we've talked about story and myth but how do we start to listen and build that sensibility to soul so one way of looking at it for me
1: is that there's an old idea a person is a dream set within a soul around which a body is wrapped so when we talk about the inside and if you go by the mystics and say Rumi, the mystical poet of one of the mystical poets of Persia, he says the world inside is bigger than the world outside. And if you just think about imagination, people can imagine places they've never been. They can imagine worlds no one has ever seen. There's this, there's this amazing power capacity um, inside, and so I think we're being forced to find that, and then but then I. But I'm distinguishing it from fantasy, right? So there's another. So there's a lot of fantasy around now. Mm-hmm. Fantasy, to me, is connected to the ego, mm-hmm. and it provides an escape, which the ego is always looking for, mm-hmm. escaping from its own mm-hmm. problems and mm-hmm. limits. Usually, mm-hmm. um, but imagination is connected to the deep soul, mm-hmm. and it's not an escape. It's a inner. It's a deeper dwelling in. So that. So to me, it's pretty clear that there's a story, a dream, you can call it different things, that was seeded or planted in each person's soul. Mm-hmm. And we're here to live out that dream or that story. Mm-hmm. And it's unique in each person. So, And that's a tricky thing for modern people to understand, that each person is completely unique. But there's shortcuts to it. One, one idea is nature only makes originals. There's many apple trees, but each is different from the other. Well, humans are the same way. Yeah. Um, and, and so finding the uniqueness of oneself, which involves a particular story trying to awaken and be lived into the world, mm-hmm. but also, to me, involves a, a complex of gifts and capacities mm-hmm. that were there before we were born. Mm-hmm. So the old argument is between two possibilities. A person is born empty and then becomes a kind of a composite of things that happened to them and that was called tabula rasa or the blank slate or the idea that a person has in them from before birth things that they were bringing to the world and and a story that they were intended to live and all, all traditional cultures had the idea of the story of a person and the imagination of a person and the soul trying to grow into the world and the modern world has a story of the the blank slate and that i think leaves the modern world empty of the inner story empty of f- genuine flexibility lacking in imagination so we have to reclaim that deep sense of a meaningful self that's here to do something and i think we have to reclaim it more so because all the usual Institutions and all are failing at the level of meaning, and so, so then, I've, I've done a lot of work with young people, and one of the first things I say to them when I, and we're we're always working in stressful situations because that's what's so interesting and that's when people change, mm-hmm. so we've done a lot of work through Mosaic with at-risk youth, and one of the things I try to get them to see right away is that they're unique, and if they don't live their story, no one's ever going to live it and that story naturally has pain in it but it also has hidden hidden values in it and talents and gifts that they were intended to bring to the world and right now the world is needing everyone's gifts and everyone's talents because the rivers need to be purified and the forests need to be substantiated just the same that healing has to happen to people in the culture and poverty has to be diminished and all that so that everybody should Um, it would benefit everybody to be going on the road that takes them to where their meaningful work is waiting to be done. So I'm just trying to revive that old idea that we came here to contribute, not to be part of a consumer society, but to give our gifts to the world, whether that's in nature and or in culture.
0: Right, and there's this distinction of in this culture, we shape meaning around happiness and that we're taught... That happiness is, is attained through individual pursuits, through which we gain status through materialism and consumption and the acquisition of power and resources. Um, but that that those are what creates happiness for us, and that's the goal. And and but there isn't anything. But that can be a very hollow experience because it's not meaningful because it leaves out how our gifts connect to community. And so, I mean, there's three words that that you use often that I'm kind of weaving into this question. Those three words are meaning, purpose, and authenticity. And so I'm I'm wondering, and and they've already come up in this conversation, but if you could speak to the importance of meaning and how meaning shapes or is connected to purpose and authenticity in relationship to the process of soul-making.
1: Okay, so story comes to mind and in this case personal story so um as you know i grew up in new york city in the 50s and 60s and so at the point where i um, just 13 and a half years old i happen to remember the time because it was a important event in my life and i'm in a little what we used to call a crew which is a neighborhood gang which were all over new york at the time and um and for various reasons, this older gang is after a good friend of mine because he insulted them or something. And they couldn't find him, but they, we all happen to be in this neighborhood theater on a Saturday afternoon, and I get up from my seat to go to the bathroom, and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these older guys who escort me to the bathroom where their leader is, and then they all pull out knives and other weapons that they have, and they're about to do damage to me in order to um, balance the insult from my friend. And I'm looking at them, and they have that stare in their eye that looks right through you that happens right before violence. And out of nowhere, I start telling the story. I mean, I say I start telling it, but I think my ego, eye departed completely because I didn't know what I was doing or the where the words were coming from but out of my little 13-year-old self came a story without hesitation and no editing and no preparation. It just poured out, and that compelled them more than their intention, and the next thing, their eyes were back in focus, and by the time I finished, they had forgotten to hurt me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, lots of other things happened around that, but the core I'm after right now is that was an experience of deep meaning for me. First of all, I found there was something inside me that I didn't even know about that actually had a capacity to withstand uh, threat, terror, anxiety, and stress in a surprising way. Withstand and transform. And transform. And so um, the meaning of it for me was my little 13 year old self awakening to the idea of story and narrative and the power it has and the fact that i was essentially connected to it and that i could authentically express it the word uh, authentic beginning with authors which is the same greek word authors the same word that starts author And so I wasn't just going to tell a story I heard somewhere. I'm creating a story on the spot that works for them. And the story, uh, people always say, what's that story, you know? But the story was, I made it about my friend. And it was mostly true, but it was also elaborated with the art of the moment and saying, listen, you you really can't judge him, you know, or, or, or your vengeance won't mean much because he's lost his mind. And the reason he's lost his mind is because his brother beats him every day and every night his father beats both of them and he's really gone out of his mind. And so he wasn't really yelling at you. He was yelling at everyone because he's really suffering so badly. But really what I was doing was telling them their story which was also my story, which is we were all being knocked around and not respected or invited to be part of life. And therefore we were on edge and on the edge of doing real violence. Yeah. And so there, what happened is the symptom became the door to a sudden community where I wasn't there any enemy anymore. I was a storyteller in a community of hurt souls. And as a result, they let me go and just said, tell your friend, don't ever do it again. Now I'm walking around in New York City at 13 years old knowing that there's meaning, that there's purpose, that there's individual soul and community, but no way to fully understand it and no one to share it with. Because when I told my friends, they just got angry and said, let's go get them. Let's, and, it, and they wanted to fight. And I was saying, no, I just found something more powerful than weapons, more meaningful than weapons. And so then I've been spending the rest of my life trying to live that story out.
0: Yeah. And, and in that, you talk about it kind of took others, the outside world, to pull that gift out of you. And the gift has to be given. And in that case,
1: none of us knew that that's what was going to be happen. But that was a gift I had. You know, in, in the neighborhood I grew up in, it was called the gift of gab. It was an Irish kind of capacity for, for talking. But... It really was a deeper gift. It was actually, I was already reading mythology, and it was this gift of a mythological intrigue, which eventually became the center of what I do and the me, you know, the kind of source of how I work. And it was already there in me. It was there before I was 13, and it just happened to break into um, a semi-conscious awareness because of the pressure of the situation. And what i try to tell young people but really i'm trying to say it to everybody is we're under pressure like that now we're being attacked by the storms of nature and the upheavals of culture and what we have to do is trust that something inside is going to wake up and come out and it's going to be our gift to that healing of that process and and ultimately we have to trust it even though inside ourselves there are many things that don't trust us because of abandonments abandonments early in life or abuses in the course of life mm-hmm. nonetheless below that behind that is something trustworthy that we ultimately depend on
0: yeah and and what is the the role of community in anchoring soul? So
1: if we just stay with that little drama, um, the gifts of a person of a person are not meaningful until they're given to a community. And a community uh, can't continue unless it sustains the genius of its own individuals. Mm-hmm. So there's a really natural dynamic between the, the genius of the individual soul and the community that needs that genius, but also can bless and confirm that soul. And so they both go together. Each person is unique, but each person is aimed at and longing for a meaningful community. And I already forgot the question.
0: Uh, just the role of community in anchoring soul.
1: Well, the community is a community of souls. Yeah. That and, and the word community comes from the Latin communitas. Mm-hmm. And communitas means to find something so deep that it pulls everyone together. And so in saying deep, we're saying soul. And, and, and so now, when the community is scattered into consumer groups and voting groups and opposed groups, we have to find more and more deep soul if we're going to bring that together. And I don't imagine it's going to suddenly happen at a national level. I think where it happens is at the local level. And soul is very local. And so, the more people can connect to a meaningful local project or local tragedy. Uh, the more likely that some soul can be gathered and made and then bring people together through pockets. I call it sudden community. That Because it's hard to sustain community. If you think of it as communitas, it's hard to stay deep. People, just like a couple in a relationship, they go deep and they find each other's soul and they love each other. Oh, and then they go to work and they take care of kids and they get confused. And then you have to find that communitas again. And so once people understand that it's, it's a, uh, a, a, a fluctuating mm-hmm. um, kind of moving target, um, then I think it's easier to accept that community appears and then disappears. Mm-hmm. And when they institutionalize it, which you get both in religion and in politics, mm-hmm. they tend to institutionalize the division as well as the unity.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you, you speak to, um, in, in Awakening the Soul, your book, you speak to these two different ways of, of perceiving reality. One is the vertical level of, of soul that sort of transcends space and time, that is sort of that holds the eternal. And then you talk about the horizontal, which is kind of the rational, the linear, and that we're, we're trapped in this horizontal world. And too much of anything becomes a, a pathology of sorts, right? And so I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, you could speak to the wounding that, that comes from living in a horizontal world. I mean, part of the words that come to mind for me are sort of dismemberment, um, disassociation, um, being fractured. You know, if we live in a world where everything is solid and that's all there is, then it can be broken really easy and there's no putting it back together. There's no healing. There's no making it whole again unless you have a deeper understanding of of healing and wholeness and how things can can come back together. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering kind of, you know, in worldviews, they have, worldviews teach us about, well, how to relate to time. They also teach us how to relate to To wounds and also to healing so in in this soul-centric perspective in a soul-centric psychology what uh what does it have to teach us about trauma
1: so if you take so first of all the horizontal i think is really strongly manifest now through the world wide web which is mostly a horizontal web so that people are connected horizontally you know and um and what's missing is the vertical imagination that goes as high as what people used to call heaven and as deep as the earth itself. And so on that vertical line, you can go as deep as it is possible to go. And so the going up is following the flights of spirit or inspiration and realizing that each person is connected to the heavens, that as a person stands on earth, they're like a um, living channel that can pull See, the old idea was you could bring heaven down to earth you didn't wait to the end of your life to see if you get into heaven you bring it down and experiencing it here because the mystics used to say what you experience here is what you experience there which is shocking to a whole bunch of people praying somewhere in a pew pun intended uh, and so so um so a person is here to f- feel the connection to those spiritual, imaginal heights, but also then to descend into the depths of soul. And in the course of descending, a person hits their area of trauma. Everyone has it. And, when, and you hit this area that probably had its first kind of um, serious wounding in infancy. I mean, no, no parents can completely hold their child there are things in the child they can't hold and no mother can completely attend to the needs of the child because the needs are emotional spiritual all kinds of things yeah. and not even through cruelty but just through turning turning away at a particular moment the child feels abandoned yeah. so everybody has their abandonment and once has a trauma mm-hmm. um, trauma by the way is a german word that's connected to the word dream mm-hmm. so where the trauma is it exists is where the dream was shattered Mm, and so i'm still saying there's a dream at the bottom or the center of the soul and we have to go down there and kind of weave that dream back together and in order to get there we have to go through the area of trauma and so Mm -hmm. that leads me to the concept of initiation which is a big uh study of mine Mm -hmm. and the archetype of initiation which most readily perceived is youth initiation, when girls become women, boys become men, they would go through a rite of passage. But to me, it had two parts to it. One was to awaken the inner dream of their life so that uh, well-intentioned and knowledgeable older adults would help a young person um, by creating a vessel of imagination and initiation through which they could experience what's at their core similar to native american vision quest Mm -hmm. and the vision is not just what you see outside it's what awakens inside Mm -hmm. but in that awakening process necessarily the wounds of the soul are stirred Mm -hmm. and so that the initiatory passage or the rite of passage would be an awakening and at the same time a healing of childhood wounds and abandonment Mm -hmm. issues or whatever it happens to be abuses that occurred Mm -hmm. would be attended to so that the young person uh, that comes out of the initiation is partly healed and knows that their healing is possible in the world, and then they are awakened to a life of meaning and purpose, where everything's not clear, but what is clear is we're here for a reason, we have something to give, and the world is trying to give us something as well, and that entire drama is missing from the modern world and so naturally people are afraid to go inside because they're going to feel pain and so there's a whole need for reawaken all this knowledge of of how the initiatory process works because as I write in the book I think we're going to a collective initiation where the the world view has to become a renewed view of the world and a view that sees a new kind of world and it has to be the world that Sees the connections between culture and nature, which have been almost dissevered by the modern world, where its exaggeration of logic and and rationality has dismissed the world of nature with its irrational brilliance.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And wow, there's there's so much there. Um, and. There's almost this, this paradox to, to the healing process, uh, which is also a developmental process, which is that to move forward generatively, you have to look backwards and, and heal what has been disassociated or uh, oppressed or repressed or forgotten. So in, in the sense of an individual, maybe there's parts of myself that I've disassociated from that I need to reestablish membership with. Um, but in a larger culture, it's it's uh, it's oppressions and collective brutalities, it's indigenous genocide, it's slavery, uh, that we need to collectively um, heal. And and um, you know I think this the the, the problem with with, with the uh, new age movement, which has been kind of pointed out time and time again, is this 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 focus on unity. There, seems, there needs to be a balance between unity and diversity, right? And, and if there's too much emphasis on unity, which is spirit, right, transpersonal, it, it makes it really easy to, to bypass all the wrongs of our history. Uh, at the same time, if there's an overemphasis on diversity, then we become polarized in that diversity.
1: Well, unless we see that diversity
0: is the strategy of nature, and in nature, diversity is a, a, a indicator of a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, it's, right?
1: the, it's, it's the secret to the continuation of a unity. It's a unity by diversity. Yeah. So the old, one of the old philosophical ideas was the tension between the one and the many. Yeah, exactly. And so the new age groups that you're talking about, mm-hmm. they fixate on the one. Mm-hmm. Many religious groups do that. Mm-hmm. The one, holy, you know, singular, divine, whatever God you're going to call it. Uh, but it was always the un- the divine essence mm-hmm. when it manifests has to manifest as diversity mm-hmm. and so in America here, the problem of diversity is also secretly the healing power of diversity trying to awaken fully and, and so what I was thinking of when you were describing that is mm-hmm. if I don't know how I'm wounded, mm-hmm. I will pretend that others aren't wounded by my presence and other things and so what's interesting to me right now topically is we've elected someone who seems to be the accumulation of all the worst symptoms in the culture yeah the pretending, like our, our collective shadow exactly and so it's very disturbing but but it's also it can be an enlightening mm-hmm. to realize there's your image of false unity there's your image of pretend success there's your image of um, kind of poisonous masculinity. Oh, wow. you, you can go on and on because it's all there. There's the, the, the narcissism of the culture embodied by a single person. So, so there may be something going on psychologically mm-hmm. where everybody has somehow uh, arranged it so that all the symptoms are now at the top
0: of the culture. And it's, it's like we've elected... Um, the false self, or you talk about the little self yeah. versus the larger yeah. soulful self. The little yeah. self is tricked into um, thinking that it's the ego. Yeah. That it's um, versus the larger self uh, understanding its relationship to the larger living systems of which it's a part and seeks to connect with through guilt, gifts, skills and gifts and being in service to. Yeah. So
1: it, going back to where you started from, um, it's possible that collectively we're trying to awaken to a more genuine genuine, and general understanding of the psyche of soul or the psychology of soul because in order to understand what's going on, a person needs psychology. Politics doesn't explain it. That's what keeps throwing everything into an uproar. They know The polls aren't predictive. No one knows what's going on. You can only read it psychologically. And to me, psychology is the bridge to mythology. So you have the singular world of facts and figures stated one at a time, measured carefully, and then that world doubles as psychology. Because now psychology is not just me, it's me and you. It's the relationship, it's the person, it's the outside person and the inside. Psychology doubles the world, inner and outer, one a person and the other, all of that. Mythology triples the world. Mythology about the world of three things, the third time is a charm, the triple goddess, um, the three steps of initiation. Mythology is a tripling of the world. And and myth in the modern world means something that's false. But the true meaning of myth is close to something that's emergent truth. Mm So myth is a series of lies that tells the truth, mm-hmm. and right now we have a seri- series of lies that obscures the meaning. Yeah. Eventually, the story, which is uh, seen from rationality, a series of untrue things, is the only way to get at the truth yeah. to figure out what story we're
0: in yeah i've been I've been thinking uh, recently about the pathology of comfort mm. and how we, our, our attachment to comfort gets in the way of our own growth and that you know where we, we want our, our house and <clears throat> our backyard and, and all of these things and, and our food and even if we know that that house and the energy we're deriving from that house, uh, even if we know that the sewage is just being dumped into the ocean and the plastic that I'm putting in my recycle bin is just actually being tossed into the ocean. You know, my, my, my uh, attachment to comfort kind of overrides all of these things that I'm kind of repressing or, or putting outside of my, my mind. And myth, uh, story, and this whole time that we live in seems to be calling us into this place of uncertainty and, and kind of the tension of opposites. And we don't have the skill set to live in uncertainty. Well, we, we secretly we do. It's the ego that doesn't think it's possible.
1: Yeah. And it's the ego that wants comfort. Because we want, and c- control, control is control wrapped Control and up comfort in, go in right comfort. together. Yeah. And, and yet, no one really changed simply sitting on a couch or, yeah. or whatever you want to use yeah. for the image of, of comfort. And so I go back to this, I call it the archetype of initiation, which which says that the soul secretly and constantly is trying to transform that we each came here to live a big life. That doesn't mean to be a loud person. It's not an obvious statement. It means to be as big as our dream. And that in order to do that, we have to keep shedding these elements of comfort and control, which psychologically are described as uh, aspects of the ego or the little self. We have to trust that there's this deeper self, that's bigger self that knows what we're actually here for. It's a really difficult thing to do. And it has become increasingly difficult because of the collapse of vertical imagination in the culture. Um, and I'm not saying that the past cultures were all great. Sure. You know, sure. I mean, many of them didn't have bathrooms, so we can imagine yeah. there's some issues and there. And they had slavery and, and they had yeah. other things. Yeah, Yeah, and ignorances of yeah. all kinds. Yes. But often they didn't lack the idea that the divine was here somehow that we were connected to the divine, which gives the hint that it must be in us too. Mm -hmm. And just that little bit of the divine is what mm, is connected to the dream and the inner knowledge that we came here to do something. Like Native American tribes had the idea that the exact medicine we're looking for is carried inside. It's very similar to the idea in the Eastern world that knowledge is inside, not outside. And right now, we have to go there. And we have to go there um, in all the discomfort in all of the tension that it requires. Because the, if I go back to the story I was telling about being 13, um, I was in this little neighborhood gang. And, and that's how I got into trouble. But I would have been in bigger trouble if I wasn't in the gang, believe me. But I went back and I said, here's what happened. And, and they didn't even care, couldn't hear it. And now I was walking around the streets of New York feeling um, partly a member of my family, partly a, a member of the neighborhood, partly a member of the gang, and yet other than all of that, because I had this other idea and this other sense of self and something had started to awaken. And so that became a tension for my entire life. I still lived that tension in, in a number of ways because as a person gets older, now they're not the youth just awakening they're supposed to become the uh elder coming into some kind of fruition Mm -hmm. and the and the elders don't sit in the center of the culture enjoying the lap of luxury Mm -hmm. not at all the elders live on the edge where change occurs Mm -hmm. and where you can encounter youth that are looking for guidance and so um so i call it um, the idea that you don't eventually retire you actually refire and refire that initial dream and try to live it all the way to the end. So I'm pointing at another lack in the culture. When a culture doesn't have a a thorough or meaningful way of helping people awaken, then it doesn't get elders. And when a culture doesn't have elders, it depends on politicians. Mm -hmm. And how's that going?
0: Yeah, yeah. And part part of initiation and the initiatory experience is a confrontation with death, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about, people are writing a lot about, you know, the importance of living in right relationship to life and what does that mean? And, and how do I live in right relationship to myself, to my community, to the planet, and to the numinous and the sacred? And, and how do I uh, engage those uh, relationships in a healthy way? And, and I wonder, I think that that uh, living in right relationship is, is to life is essential but maybe there's a back door to that that we're ignoring, which is how do we first live in right relationship to death? Yeah. And if we can live in right relationship to death, which is connected to change and transformation, then death teaches us how to live in right relationship to life. Yeah, beautiful. And I agree with you. And how, you know, Jung talks about that which we um, suppress. If we do it fully, it pops up. In the world around us, and we live in this uh, dominant Western culture is scared of change and scared uh, of death. We don't allow ourselves to look at it in any sort of way. And so, what have we created? We've created this, this, these catastrophes that are creating this existential crisis that's forcing us to either face death and transform, or be killed, or you know face yeah. the possibilities of, of extinction. Big mistake when a culture
1: doesn't give death a place because then it can show up anywhere. School massacres, mosque massacres, massacres, temple massacres. Death has no respected, understood place, so it's popping up all over. Uh, Opioid crisis, increasing number of overdoses, and so on. Death is dislocated just the way people are. I always think of of Octavio Paz, the... Mexican poet who said, a culture that begins by denying death will end up denying life. And the old idea is that death is not the opposite of life, it's the opposite of birth. Life includes birth and death in it, and it includes them over and over again. So I think in the book, I make the distinction between little death and big death. Big death, that's the door that comes at the end, and so far, Mm -hmm. no one's gotten out of this alive. Everybody's headed for that door, whether they acknowledge it or not, little death is the deaths of the ego, the the deaths of the little self when a person realizes, I'm not living a real life. I'm not doing what I'm here to do. I'm not living a big enough life. Mm -hmm. And then in order to change that, something has to die and be let go. So transformation, Mm -hmm. which means to go through the form to another form, Mm -hmm. to transform means to leave oneself behind in order to live a bigger self yeah. and like you said earlier it's parts of our self that we're trying to refine because no family is big enough to embrace their entire child yeah. the family has its limits automatically and has its own purposes too but so something in the child is always repressed and suppressed mm-hmm. and then again back to initiation that's when you would tear the skin off and mm-hmm. see what's really in there or One of the oldest images in the world is the snake that sheds its skin, and it looks like it died, but now it actually has a new skin and it's moving on. And so one of the problems with change in the individual life and in the cultural life is that until we put something down, we cannot transform. And so we may have the big, bright idea you were talking about. um, What did you call that? The, um, The new age style of visioning, which, you know, overly bright and overly light Mm -hmm. and it doesn't attend to what's dying and therefore the transformation doesn't fully occur. So, um, I I couldn't agree more. An understanding of death, which used to be, was called the beginning of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Philosophy, philosophia means uh, the love of knowledge. And philosophy begins with the presence of death. That was an old statement. Mm -hmm. So that understanding It's not, what do you you call that? It's not a matter of being um, dark or overly heavy, but when I understand that I'm gonna die, it actually makes life more important and in a sense more present. So the African proverb is, when death finds you, let it find you alive. And And that's the function of the awareness of death is to be alive in the moment, to be alive in the self. Because one day, as another African proverb says, on the day when you would die, uh, your feet will walk to that door and your legs will carry you. We're going there. Um, But the other idea is that a person who has died, um, Rumi says, die before you die. A person who has died many times, in the sense of shedding the restrictions of the ego, is not as afraid and angry and resentful when the big D death comes. That's the idea, to arrive at the end not kind of trapped in fear, and, and and spun by anger.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and going through these death processes, there's a, a psychotherapist Francis Weller that talks about. He wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, and he talks about grief as a doorway to soul, and that when we give ourselves permission to go into that that darkness that death invites us into there's deep gifts and transformative gifts that wait on the other side of that energy that's ultimately generative, right? And there's a lot of uh, uh, research being done at Berkeley right now by this, uh, uh, his name's Dacher Keltner, and he's looking into awe and the role that awe plays in the human experience. And he talks about people that report having daily experiences of awe, just uh, seeing the light through the trees, looking at uh, the skyline of New York City or Manhattan, right? Um, they hold their beliefs much lighter. They report higher levels of well-being. They're more empathetic because the, because they hold their beliefs lighter, because they're humbled by awe. They can then step into the other in a more healthy way. And so I'm wondering, too, right? Death death is something that needs to be reclaimed. And on the flip side of death, so is kind of the ecstatic and the sacred and an and, and orientation that humbles us in a good way, that keeps us on our toes, that keeps us in that place of uncertainty in a way that's not discomfort but is inspiring? No, those, those
1: are beautiful ideas. Uh, one thing that made me think of is, so emo, emotions, some people say, travel in pairs, yeah. joy and sorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you can only experience as much joy as you allow sorrow. Yeah. So yeah. you go down on sorrow and you rise up on joy. It's a natural emotional trade-off. So the pair um, that I know of is awe and terror. When people are not awestruck by the world, the world becomes terrifying. And so this idea of studying awe is really important. In other words, and that also leads back to the idea of beauty in, in Keats's old idea that beauty and truth are connected. And so to be In awe is to actually be in the presence of beauty and truth. Mm -hmm. And and beauty doesn't mean pretty in this case. It means that which shines with a quality normally found in the other world, which you can see in a skyline of a city. It, It really looks like the other world at times. So I love that idea about awe and the connection to the ecstatic. And, of course, the word ecstatic simply means to be out of the static usual position of the ego. And so uh, so that dance and music and lovemaking and all the things mm-hmm. that um, that are wonders in that sense mm-hmm. are necessary mm-hmm. for living life fully. And so you know I went through many years still involved with people doing serious activist work yeah. and um, and one of the problems is burnout. Yeah. You know you know you're doing something that is meaningful yeah. and it's it's um, a place you can really commit yourself and yet if you stay only there you burn out because you wind up in a static concentration of intensity that is not life-renewing static stagnant yeah yeah so a person needs to find their way of being ecstatic which for some people by the way is gardening I mean I watch it's the most popular hobby in the United States is gardening but they all look like they're praying to me, especially when they're down there with the flowers and all. And so there's an ecstatic quality because they're participation, participating in the creativity of nature. So that can be ecstatic. A person can find their way to the ecstatic. Music was the classic thing back in the 60s when a lot of transformation was going on in American culture. Music was the way. And I know growing up in New York, some of the same guys that I knew that were carrying... Zip guns and stuff, mm-hmm. traded them in for guitars. Yeah. And there was a, a, a noticeable shift or transformation with the same burning intensity that was going into violence was now going into music. Yeah. And so um, that's a move towards the ecstatic. And, and of course, we still have, thankfully, rock and roll and rap and related things. But that move to be part of something that gets expansive and rhythmically so is really a longing for the aw- awesome and for the ecstatic. And people actually go seek it in collective groups without fully realizing that it's the divine coming through the artist to touch those who are present at the moment that everybody's looking for, including the musicians.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think of you know, if we're living in just this, this horizontal world that doesn't um, understand, acknowledge, or honor the vertical, um, we react to the experience of fear with violence, um, with hatred. But in that space of soul, if we can create an awareness and a connection to uh, the vertical world, then maybe we can use that energy of soul and transmute it into, through creativity and imagination, power create something new.
1: Which in order to do, a person has to go through their fears. Because as I was saying earlier, we're here to live big lives, whatever that means to the individual. And getting, I've been afraid, most of my life yeah. of, of stepping into that bigness, that mm-hmm. awesome thing that's right nearby. Mm-hmm. And, and so fear, they used to say, becomes the guide. Mm-hmm. What we're afraid of is where we're headed. Mm-hmm. And so if a person can distinguish amongst the fears mm-hmm. and not just be caught in the collective anxiety and fear and consider what am I really afraid of, it, it starts to bring you closer mm-hmm. to what you're really longing for. Yes. And so... Going back to comfort and control, a lot of the fear is the fear of losing control, which is, so I call it, uh, you have abandonment issues, and then you have the possibility of reckless abandon, where you give yourself to something that actually is going to nurture your own soul and make the world bigger, and it's the same idea that's in the ecstatic and so if we're going to transform our own lives and transform the, con- the worldview and the conditions that we're in, it's going to have to include the ecstatic, which is also a, a, a pointing to the divine. We're going to have to uh, make it that big that we find a touch of the divine in ourselves and begin to figure out how we could help that be present in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I know we're a little over an hour. I just have one one or two more questions for you. We uh, have in, a lot in of in questions, this, but they're good questions. time-bound, time-bound <laughs> world. Um, but first, I'm just kind of sitting with this image of, you know, are we going to give our soldiers guns for more wars, or are we going to give them shovels to plant trees, you know?
1: The, the Irish had a saying, um, you don't give a man a weapon until you've taught him how to dance. And the dance is not... The jig, the Irish jig. It means the ecstatic dance. And until a person understands the ecstatic world Mm -hmm. and that they're connected to it both in nature and in in culture, when culture is being creative, you don't give them a weapon. In other words, you don't arm people that are not initiated to the wonder and awe of being alive. I mean,
0: that's just a basic thing that they could put into one sentence. Yeah, and that comes back to this idea of like... Immature ideas of responsibility versus mature ideas and understandings of responsibility and through the initiation process You understand that you are responsible to life and the process of life Um, But lastly, I I just want to touch on this one topic because I think it's it's so essential to uh, Well both to kind of what's up in culture now through the me too movement um, And kind of this critique of of toxic masculinity um, but also this conception, our, our current cultural conception of, of power, and and ideas around sort of healthy power and, and unhealthy power, and I was reading this uh, scholar and teacher Bell Hooks, and she talks about patriarchy as a non-gendered socio-political belief system that uses domination and oppression for control, and so patriarchy isn't connected. I love her definition because patriarchy is not connected to the masculine or the feminine. It's connected to power and how we understand power. And those cultural understandings of power then shape our understandings of gender. and specifically in the, this context, the, the masculine and how the masculine should engage in the world, um, which in the dominant cultural ideology, the masculine engages in, in competition, right? Engages in force. And um, so out of that, we get these ideas of, of toxic masculinity, but we, and, but we also on a cultural level get abuse, right? We get resource extraction. It's not just the oppression of the other, be it another gender or another belief system. It's the oppression and domination over nature. And it's the oppression of the sacred and the ecstatic and the repression of death, all of these things that have marginalized that, which isn't kind of in its own image, right? We've marginalized. Um, and another idea of power is rather than power over, power with. And so I'm just wondering, I mean, I know you've done a lot of men's work in, in, in the past. And so I'm wondering about this dynamic between healthy power and healthy masculinity and, and what soul has to teach us about those two things.
1: Or just following the kind of proverbial approach, you could say you don't give a man power until he knows his own woundedness. And again, just look at who's been elected. And so you you, people, um, I mean, it's such a great Mm -hmm. mystery and a wonder, and and I I love that you mentioned uh, Bell Hooks and her brilliant ideas Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the, the basic tension between power and love which, which plays out in all of the unfortunate results that have to be called into awareness through the Me Too movement and other things. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just, uh, this morning, have been working on chapters in the first book I ever wrote, The Water of Life. And in that book, I, I, at the time, I was researching a lot of African tribes, and I found a tribe that gave a name to what that is, the misuse of power, and they call it L- Litima. And in their view of things, in their worldview, they said it's something that has a masculine tone and an intensity like fire Mm -hmm. that either can become the hearth of the culture and the flame of creativity, or else it becomes the source of brutality and power dominance and um, misaligned drivenness. And so there is a connection, in a sense, to the masculine. it, and, and you know, this is all mysteries, and I don't know how you tease them out, but in a given moment, you can figure out, for instance, a woman, whether she becomes a mother or not, that's not the point. Her womb is capable of giving birth to life. Mm-hmm. Men don't have that. Mm-hmm. They don't have that capacity, and they don't have that kind of um, uh, knowledge, you know, running through the, the, the organs. Mm-hmm. And so men, in some sense have more of the the attraction to and a capacity for power Mm -hmm. because they don't have the capacity instinctively, biologically for giving birth, which is not a matter of power. It's a matter of sacrificial creativity. Mm -hmm. And so you have this kind of difference that can be overplayed, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of psychological ideas. Mm -hmm. So I found this tribe and um, in the tribe, uh, women, the girls, when they're going through their initiation to become women and they're being um, instructed or guided by older women, make a beautiful um, um, like beads, rows of beads that are worn across their womb and over their genitals that they begin to wear that says, I'm a woman. I'm connected to the the beaded threads of life in a way that's beautiful and meaningful, and you have to respect me as I stand. And no one has the right to approach this area of myself, which is really the source of all future generations, unless I take these beads off uh, willingly. Fantastic, right? They should have that in every girl's, you know, e- event in all the high schools and colleges, you know, and and uh, but. To my amazement, when I found this, in the initiation of the boys, they wear the similar beads that are made by women of the tribe, by women who, who want to see them become uh, beautiful and meaningful um, and find their own gifts. And that's both their, their kin, but also whoever, who ever cares for them, make them beads like that that they wear over the heart. And so that the womb of men is inside the heart and the initiation is trying to crack the heart open in order that the beauty inside and the feminine qualities can live through that uh, boy who's going to become a man. And so then you have a, a, a hint at, at what's missing in, the, in, in terms of a genuine education of girls and women and of boys and men. And then the beads, these beautiful beads that are made by the women of the tribe, become the evidence that the weaving of the two intersects in ways that are mysterious but connected. That was just like I'm just reworking that chapter. Remember when I found that that story and that, and it has to do with a bunch of rituals and stuff. So when we say that something's trying to awaken in the soul there are all these old stories there are all these old rituals there are these deep understandings that give a different uh, way of viewing and experiencing power and and it, you know it was well understood in many of traditional cultures that you don't give men power unless they know how they are wounded or they will automatically wound others and often pretend they didn't do it and that's what's going on and, and again, we've elected it so we can see it clear as a bell. Yeah. And so, but I like the idea that these beads are waiting to be found. These strands yeah. of imagination and cultural healing are waiting to be found. And that a very similar decoration, if it's not just that, but anyway, symbolic material yeah. is worn over the womb of the woman and over the heart of the man. And that's how we refine the qualities and, and stop the idea of a dominant, masculine overuse of power because they feel the femininity inside themselves and therefore can um, compassionately relate to the vulnerability of of women because the men have to find that vulnerability in their heart.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the wisdom that comes out of these ceremonial, ritualistic, initiatory spaces is relational wisdom, right? Remembering these soul-centric threads that connect us to the larger living systems which our gifts are here then to serve and be a part of yeah. and that's kind of that maturation of, of, uh, of responsibility understand I'm not just I don't just need to be responsible for myself mm-hmm. but with great gifts come a great responsibility to the larger living systems which means to respond to respond the to ability the to respond to in the world yeah. and so as the
1: institutions fall apart there's this whole underlying inheritance of the human soul that's trying to awaken again, I think. And so one of the things missing throughout modern culture is meaningful rituals, and people cannot come together without a kind of ritual process. And so culture in its its ideas and even in, in its psychological grasps can't create unity. It's actually creative ritual and deep imagination because imagination is below and beyond masculine and feminine, and therefore can find ways for those two things to become a creative
0: unity. To come together. And, well, lastly, I was wondering if you could just leave us with a story, you know, and feeling into this conversation and kind of what's on your own leading edge of thought right now. Well,
1: my favorite story of these times, and, and I've asked it for to forgive me for telling it over and over, but it gets to the point um, so swiftly and simply, and it's a Native American story that says there's a cave nearby and that that's the cave where knowledge resides. And humans are set up to be seeking knowledge in one form or another. And even though the cave is nearby and the knowledge we're looking for is in the cave, people keep not finding it people find roads to every which place, back roads and inroads and highways and super highways, and everybody's driving quickly and fast night and day, and yet no one's finding the cave. But if you found the cave, inside the cave you would see an old woman who's weaving the most beautiful garment anyone has ever seen, and she's been weaving it for a long time, so long that she's tired, in a sense, or somewhat tired of weaving it, and she wants to finish the edge of it in the most beautiful way, and so she's using porcupine quills to line the edge of the garment, and in order to weave them into the garment, she has to bite down on the quills, and she's been biting so long that she's worn her teeth down to the gums, but still she keeps biting down and weaving on. But every once in a while she has to get up and go to the back of the cave to stir the cauldron that sits over the fire that some people say is the most ancient thing in the world and inside the cauldron are all the seeds of all the plants and all the bushes and trees and all the flowers and all the grains and if she doesn't stir the cauldron of those seeds then all of the plants and trees might die. And so every once in a while she puts down the garment and goes to the back of the cave to stir the cauldron. And as she slowly moves to the back of the cave because she's old and a little bit tired, the dog, what dog? The dog that was nearby comes over and sees a loose thread where the garment has been laid on the floor and it takes the loose thread and begins to pull it until the whole garment unravels and the old woman after she stirs the seeds of all the grains and all the uh, trees and flowers comes back and she sees her beautiful weaving laying in chaos on the floor of the cave and for a moment just stands there realizing what has happened and then she sits down not knowing what to do And she sees a loose thread herself and she picks it up. And as soon as she picks it up, she sees a vision of a garment even more beautiful than the one she had been weaving for so long. And she begins to weave that vision into a garment. And that old woman, they say, is the old woman of the world. And the garment she's weaving is the garment of the world we live in. And some people say, damn that dog for unraveling the garment, but the elders of the tribe say be thankful for whatever unravels life because if she ever finished the garment, it would be perfect and therefore it would be dead and over and gone. Be thankful for the unraveling because it gives us the chance to pick up a thread and join the old woman in reweaving this world with a greater worldview and a deeper compassion for herself as well as others.
0: Mm. Beautiful.
1: My favorite little story. Thank you so <laughs> much. it has the whole world in it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you again to Michael Mead. You can find out more about Michael's prolific writing, podcast, talks, and workshops at mosaicvoices.org. Pathways to Resilience is brought to you in part by The Resilience Project a learning community committed to understanding and responding to the great global challenges of our time. They have a growing list of resources that relate to resilience, which you can explore on their website at resilienceproject.ngo. Pathways to Resilience is an education, leadership, and community development organization that uses media and online and site-specific experiential educational programming to nurture relational wisdom and resilience on personal, interpersonal, and structural levels. You can find out more about our offerings at pathwaystoresilience.net.